One of the dangers we have to avoid when reading Scripture, especially the parts describing miraculous events, is the tendency to view the stories as fairy tales. What I mean is, most of us have grown up in a culture that contains a number of fun or interesting stories that are just stories, but are not actually historical accounts. Maybe as a child you were read or told the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, or Pinocchio, or the boy who cried wolf, or the emperor's new clothes, or one of Aesop's fables. These tales all have an interesting story to them, and they often have a lesson for life, or as it is usually called, the moral of the story. These kinds of stories have a place in life, but we need to be careful that we don't transfer our view of those stories onto the stories of Scripture. The stories of Scripture aren't just stories. They are historical accounts. Some of the more famous ones are Noah and the Ark, Jonah and the Huge Fish, Daniel and the Lion's Den, and several of the miracles of Jesus, such as turning water into wine, walking on water, feeding the 5,000, etc. It is critically important that we not view these historical accounts as mere stories or fairy tales or myths with a moral. They are historical events. As astounding as they are, and no matter how seemingly impossible, they are presented to us in the Word of God as actual historical events. One such story is the account, the account we considered in the last message, and that is the occasion when Jesus cast thousands of demons into a herd of swine which ran madly down a hill and into the Sea of Galilee. That story is recorded in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three synoptic Gospels which lets us know that it was an event of considerable importance. We're going to return to that story this morning and finish our consideration of it. So please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 5, the second book of the New Testament, the second gospel account. Mark chapter 5, and please follow along as I read verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 5. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. 
For Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who had fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when Jesus got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. We considered the first 17 verses of this chapter last Lord's Day in some detail. As you can see, it is the opening account recorded here in chapter 5 of Mark's Gospel. Because it occurs here in the opening verses of chapter 5, it's very easy for us to jump right into this story without considering its connection to what just took place at the end of chapter 4. Remember now, when the Bible was written, when the New Testament was written, there were no chapter divisions. Those did not come along until about 1227 A.D., so 1,200 years or 1,100 years after the New Testament was completed. There were no chapter divisions. So we don't want to form a strong break in our minds between chapter 4 and chapter 5 because there was not a strong break there when Mark wrote this gospel. The final verses of chapter 4 describe the time when Jesus calmed a fur furious storm on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, all three of the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the synoptic gospels place this event of chapter 5 right after the occasion when Jesus calmed the raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. That probably means that this event here in chapter 5 of the demon-possessed man did actually take place right after Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Now the reason why I said it that way is because we know that there are places in the gospel records where the writers put events together that didn't necessarily happen in that exact chronological order. The gospel writers are not always concerned about chronology. They are more concerned about theme and message. Therefore, Sometimes they group events together in such a way to communicate the message or the theme they are trying to convey 
in their gospel record. So we can't always assume that when an event is recorded after another event, that they took place in that exact order. However, because all three synoptic gospels place this encounter with the demonized man right after the miracle of calming the storm, it is a safe assumption that the one event did follow the other. That raises a question. Is there a connection between these two events? Or did they just happen to follow one another from one event to the other? One thing we know for sure, Jesus was going to the other side of the lake for the purpose of delivering this demon-possessed man, and he went through a storm to get to the man. So again, I raise the question. Was the storm coincidental? It just happened to happen that night, or was there more to it than that? Some think that the storm itself may have been satanic in origin since Jesus used the same words to calm the sea as he did to cast out demons. You see, in Mark 1.25, Jesus told a demon to be quiet when he was commanding the demon to come out of a man. And when Jesus calmed the storm at the end of chapter 4, he used the exact same Greek word to tell the sea to be quiet. Therefore, some commentators see a connection that may suggest a demonic force behind the storm. If that was the case, what would have been the purpose of the satanically induced storm that we read about at the end of chapter 4? The goal would have been to do one of two things. Number one, the storm may have been a satanic attempt to kill Jesus. Or, number two, it may have been a satanic attempt to prevent Jesus from going to the east side of the lake where so many demons had established a base of operation, a foothold in Israel. If either was the goal of a demonically induced storm, the plot obviously failed. Number one, Jesus was not going to be killed before it was time for him to die on the cross. Jesus could not have died any other way but on the cross. He could not have been stoned to death. He could not have died in a shipwreck. He could not have died in any way other than by crucifixion because of the prophecies in Hebrew Scripture. Secondly, nothing was going to stop Jesus from getting to this man who was being destroyed by demons. Jesus was going to deliver this man. Actually, two men. And Jesus was going to do something about the demonic base of operation that had been established in the region of the Decapolis. In fact, it is possible that in anticipation of Jesus coming to the land, that many demons had gathered there in advance, or once Jesus was on site, demons from all around the world began to gather because that's where the action was. That's where the battle was being staged. And so when Jesus was here on planet earth in the land of Israel, there were probably more demons in Israel than have ever been there before or will ever be again. 
When I think about Jesus attacking a violent storm to deliver a demonically tormented man or demonically tormented men, I cannot help but think of what he said in John 10.10. He said this, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Think about that statement in light of what we see here in chapter 5. This demonized man's life was being stolen from him as he was being killed and destroyed by multitudes of demons. But Jesus intervened and gave that man abundant life. This man was an outcast. He was infested with demons. But the demons weren't a challenge to the Lord's authority, just as the violent storm at the end of chapter 4 was no challenge to the Lord's authority. Both the storm and the demonized man were out of control and threatened everyone around, but the Lord demonstrated his authority over both the storm and the demons. As a further parallel, when Jesus did conquer and calm each one, the response of the audience was immense fear. The disciples feared exceedingly once Jesus had calmed the storm. Look at the last verse of the previous chapter. Verse 41 of chapter 4. Mark tells us, and they, referring to the disciples, and they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? You may remember as we looked at that account that the disciples were afraid when they were in the storm. Yes, they were very afraid. But when they saw what Jesus did to the storm, they feared exceedingly. In the same way, the residents of the Decapolis were afraid of this demonized man. He was very scary. But when they saw what Jesus did, the end of verse 15 tells us they were afraid to the point of asking Jesus to leave. Luke tells us they were gripped with great fear. So there are a lot of connections and parallels between the final event in chapter 4 and the first event in chapter 5. And as I said earlier, there really is no break in the narrative in the original, just in our English versions here with the chapter division. So it's important that we see all of these connections and parallels that Mark wants us to see in recording these stories back to back. With all that in mind, let's review this story here in chapter 5 so that it's fresh in our minds as we come to the very important epilogue in our text, which consists of verses 18 through 20. Mark tells us in chapter 5, verse 1, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. Some of your versions say the country of the Gadarenes, and some say the country of the Gerasenes. This area was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, where the modern village of Kersey is located. Verse 2 says, And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Archaeological excavations at Kersey have revealed the fact 
that some ancient tombs are there. That shouldn't surprise us. This is exactly what the story says. In addition, the shoreline there descends steeply into the water of the Sea of Galilee. So the particulars of this location match the events of the story that Mark records here. The people of this region worshipped idolatrous gods of fertility, specifically Beelzebub, and they saw the pig as their sort of the, the sacred animal of their fertility cult. You could say it this way, the pig was to these people what the lamb was to the Jewish people. Just as the Jewish people offered lambs as their sacrifice to the true God of heaven and earth, these people offered pigs as a sacrifice to their idolatrous God. And this man, Mark tells us in verse 3, had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. This shows the fierceness and rage and strength of this demon-possessed man. I wish there were some way you could sort of put your your Greek glasses on to look at this in the original language. Multiple negatives are used throughout this story in the Greek text to emphasize this man's tremendous strength. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing could be done to tame this man. In fact, verse 4 says, he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. This man was uncontrollable. He couldn't be bound by rope or cord or chains or shackles or fetters or anything. That is superhuman strength because it was not human strength. It was demonized strength. Mark tells us at the end of this verse that no one could tame this man. And he uses a word to describe taming wild animals. This man was like a wild animal. So it goes without saying that he was not the kind of neighbor anyone would want. And that helps explain why he spent his time in the mountains and in the tombs. And verse 5 says, And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. People wanted this man as far away as possible, out of society, because they didn't want to hear his screams and his shrieking voice, and they didn't want to see his lacerated, naked body. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Think of how scary this would be for the disciples to see this naked, lacerated, shrieking man running toward them and Jesus. It would have been terrifying. There's an interesting interplay in this text between the man, the demon, and the multiple demons. As the story unfolds, we find out that this man didn't merely have a demon terrorizing him. He had scores of demons. For example, when the demon speaks in verse 10, it says, He begged Jesus not to send them. Notice the switch from singular to plural. He, the demon... Beg Jesus not to send them the scores of demons. So it wasn't just one demon, but one demon was acting as the spokesman for the group. However, the man still retained some of his own independent consciousness. 
In other words, he wasn't merely a robot. He was certainly demonized and and uh, demon-influenced, but maybe it wouldn't even be completely accurate to say demon-controlled. Controlled to some extent, but not completely controlled. He wasn't merely a robot. Therefore, it's difficult to know what or who was motivating this action of running toward Jesus and kneeling before him. Was this the man's action? Was he running to Jesus in an attempt or a, basically a, an appeal to be delivered? Or was the demon prompting this action, pushing this action, because the demon had to bow in submission before Jesus? It's very difficult to know. Either way you take it, it is obvious that in verse 7 it is the demon who is speaking. In verse 7, he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, I adjure you by God that you do not torment me. As you read through the gospel accounts, you often see demons making statements of perfect theology. Here the demon refers to Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. Mark it well. Demons know the truth about Jesus. Remember, before their rebellion, before their fall, they were with Him in the heavenlies. They know the truth about Jesus. They know who Jesus is. And they often acknowledged that truth when they encountered Jesus. They spoke the truth with articulate precision. What an illustration of the fact that a person can know all the right theology and still not be a Christian. A person can know all the facts of the gospel and even believe they are true, but not be willing to surrender his heart to the Lordship of Christ. Mark it well. Intellectual assent to the gospel doesn't make you a Christian. Saying, I believe Jesus died, rose again the third day, doesn't make you a Christian. Believing the truth doesn't make you a Christian. It's possible to believe the truth but not be willing to yield to the Lord Jesus. It's possible to know the truth but not want to embrace it for your life personally. James 2.19 says, the demons believe and tremble. They believe and tremble but they are still damned because they maintain their rebellion against the Lord. Tragically, there are people like that also. Notice that this demon here in this verse, verse 7, notice that this demon begged Jesus not to torment him. How ironic that the demon who had been tormenting this man mercilessly was asking Jesus not to torment him. The tormentor begs for mercy from Jesus so as not to be tormented. Oh, the wickedness of these spirit beings. The the wickedness to the very core. That he would torment this man for so long, mercilessly, and then expect Jesus to give him mercy and not torment him. Verse 8, for Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. 
When Jesus began telling this demon to come out of the man, the demon began to panic. Jesus knew what was going on behind the scenes, so he asked a question to bring the situation out into the open. Verse 9, Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. The term legion was used of a military unit of 6,000 men. Jesus asked this question to reveal the fact that this man was controlled or influenced, tormented by an extremely large number of demonic spirits. It would not be an exaggeration or an overstatement to say there were thousands of demons in this man and in this region of Israel, which gives us insight into the next verse. Verse 10 says, Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. You see, these demons had established a foothold in the land of Israel. They saw this as their territory. And they were promoting their demonic, idolatrous religion, not only to entrap men and women in error, but also to resist the work of Messiah Jesus. Just like the demons in Genesis 6 who cohabited with women, these demons had a purpose that went beyond their immediate actions. They were trying to resist and thwart and defeat the plan of God to save mankind through Messiah. So Jesus confronted them head on, and at the same time, he dealt with the pigs that the people used in their heinous worship of their false gods. Verse 11, Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. As I said earlier, the people of this region saw the pig as the sacred animal of their fertility cult. They offered these pigs as a sacrifice to their idolatrous God, just as the Jewish people offered lambs to the true God. It was despicable that such a practice was going on in the land of Israel. I mean, it was despicable that the false religion was there. But to use pigs of all things, a ceremonially unclean animal according to the law of God, for the Old Covenant, the whole thing was despicable. So verse 12 tells us, All the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. The pigs rushing violently into the lake would have been a visible confirmation that the demons had been expelled from this man. There's no way to see spirit beings leave a man, but seeing the pigs run madly down the hill would have visibly confirmed that the demons had been forced to leave this man. Jesus gave a visible object lesson of what happened to the demons. Just as the pigs plunged into the depth of the water, so also the demons were thrust into the depth of the abyss. The demons have been dealt with, and at the same time, Jesus rid the, the region of the unclean animals that were being used in the worship of Beelzebub. Furthermore, this man was delivered from demonic control. Now, as I said last week, you would think, you would think that this would cause everyone in this region to want to believe in Jesus and be a follower of Jesus. But that's not what happened. Instead, verse 14 tells us, so those who fed the swine fled. They told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. 
So people go to see. This should have caused the people of this region uh, to be ecstatic. It should have made them ecstatic. This should have caused them to laud Jesus and extol him. After all, not only just for what Jesus had done for this man personally, but what he had done for their community. Who wants, what community of people in their right mind wants a demonized man tormenting people, screaming at people, shrieking in the night? Who would want that? Even if you didn't care anything about the man, you would want some change so that this wasn't in your neighborhood or your community. So they should have been thrilled at what Jesus had done. Extremely grateful. But that wasn't their response. Verse 15, Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Luke tells us in his account that the people were gripped with great fear. One of the reasons why they were seized with fear was because they realized this man, Jesus, was more powerful than the God they worshipped. Jesus was more powerful than Beelzebub. But rather than turning to Jesus, the people ask him to depart. Verse 16 tells us, And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their reach. Why did they ask Jesus to depart? Maybe they were upset with their financial loss. It's pretty significant, 2,000 swine. Maybe they were upset with the attack on their religious practices. Make no mistake about it, it was a, an attack on their false, idolatrous religion. Or maybe they were afraid that Jesus was going to judge them for their idolatry just as he had judged the demons. They didn't want to mess with this man. He had power. This man had authority. The demon-possessed man had been scary, no doubt, because of his fierce power. But Jesus was even more scary to them. If he could cast out fierce demons, he was not to be resisted. But you see, they had no intention of yielding their lives to Jesus. None. It is shockingly and tragically sad that these people basically ran Jesus out of town. The one who could grant them salvation, forgiveness, and new life was asked to leave. And you know what? He did. He doesn't stay where he is not wanted. I think of the example of the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. It was a church that had basically turned Jesus away, shut him out. They didn't need him, so they thought, because they were wealthy and self-sufficient. So Jesus was dismissed from their church. That's why he makes the offer he does in Revelation 3.20, which says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Beloved, that is an appeal from the Lord to get into his own church. Can you imagine that? An appeal to get into his own church. The Lord Jesus knocks on the door and says, Well, if the church as a whole won't hear, if anyone does, if anyone in the church will open the door, I'll come in. 
and fellowship with him, dine with him. I'm sure many of you have seen the famous painting by the English artist Holman Hunt. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus standing at a door. When he first painted the picture, he invited his artist friends to criticize it or critique it, give him input. One of them said to him, Holman, you have left off a very important part of the door. You left off the handle of the door. There's no handle in the picture where Jesus is standing there on the outside of the door. Hunt replied, the handle of the door is on the inside. That says it well. The handle of the door is on the inside. Jesus doesn't stay where he's not wanted. The residents of this place where Jesus delivered the demonized man asked Jesus to leave, and you know what he did? He left. What an illustration of John 3.19, which says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. It's an amazing story, but there's more to it. There's an epilogue to this story that is fascinating, and it's in verses 18 through 20. Notice what Mark tells us. Verse 18. And when Jesus got into the boat... He who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. This man wanted to go with Jesus. He sees Jesus getting in the boat to leave, and he begs Jesus to come along. We don't know what this man's motivation was for wanting to go along with Jesus, but he implored Jesus to let him go along. Maybe he was concerned with how he would be treated in his community as a result of all the fear he had inflicted on people. Maybe he was concerned he'd be alienated, stiff-armed, maybe even persecuted. Or maybe he was just excited about sharing his testimony in all the villages where Jesus was going to visit in his ministry. Maybe that's why he wanted to go. Or maybe he just wanted to hang around Jesus some more. Who could blame him for that one? Maybe he just wanted to be with Jesus. We don't know his motivation. But he really wanted to go with Jesus and the other disciples. And he begged Jesus to let him go along. Verse 19 tells us, However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Jesus didn't permit the man to go along. Jesus didn't permit this man to accompany him in his ministry. Now, some church growth experts would think that Jesus was making a really big mistake at this point. I mean, think about the crowds you could attract by advertising that a formerly demon-possessed man is coming to a theater near you. I mean, people would come out of the woodwork just to come and see this attraction. Jesus could have attracted even larger crowds by taking this man along with him. But beloved, Jesus wasn't into attracting large crowds. That wasn't his motivation. Jesus ran his ministry with purpose, intention. His goal wasn't to attract large crowds. Therefore, he didn't permit this man to go along with him. 
Instead of allowing the man to accompany him, Jesus told the man to go home to his friends to show them what the Lord had done for him. This raises the question, why did Jesus give this man that instruction? Why did Jesus do it this way? I think there were at least two reasons. Number one, the reality of a changed life is seen or not seen by those closest to us. You see, it's easy to claim to be a Christian. It's easy to claim to be a follower of Christ. But what do the people who are closest to us see? What do the people around you in your circle see in your life? I'm talking about the people you live with or work with or play with or spend time with. The reality of a changed life is seen by those closest to us in the everyday events of life. What are your attitudes? What kind of words do you use when you're not here at church in this, this building? How do you respond to situations in life? How do you respond to pressure situations in life? How do you treat people around you? Those are the circumstances of life that reveal whether or not our claim to be a follower of Jesus has merit. Hein, the German philosopher, said, Show me your redeemed life, and I might believe in your Redeemer. I think that's fair. Show me your redeemed life, and I might believe in your Redeemer. Jesus wanted this man to go back to his home and to his friends to tell and show what the Lord had done for him. And that leads to the second reason why I believe Jesus gave this command to this man. And that is this. The Lord wanted this man to be a light and a witness in the largely Gentile region or Hellenized region known as the Decapolis. The people of that region had asked Jesus to leave. But the Lord was going to make sure that those people had a light, had a testimony, or a witness among them. So Jesus told this man to stay in his hometown. And the man did. Verse 20. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And all marveled. The word Decapolis is a combination of two words in Greek. Deca which means ten, and polis, which means city. So the word Decapolis referred to the ten cities of this area south of Galilee and mostly east of the Jordan River. The residents of these cities were almost all Gentiles. This league of cities was formed purposely, in, specifically to preserve Greek culture in this Jewish section of the world. Jesus didn't spend a lot of time in this area of Israel, but he did visit it on occasion, and he did minister there some. However, however, he did want to make sure that the people of this region, 
had a light or a testimony or a witness among them. Notice he didn't command this man to tell no one, as had been the case with the miracles in Jewish Israel. Remember how many times we've already seen that in Mark's gospel? Jesus heals someone. He says, don't tell anyone. Don't you dare tell anyone. Jesus didn't give this man that kind of command, as had been the case with miracles in Jewish Israel, because Jesus wasn't concerned about the people trying to force him to be king. That was the case on the other side of the lake, in the Jewish part, but not here. These people didn't have these inaccurate messianic concepts of a political leader coming to overthrow Rome and all of that stuff. So Jesus sent this man back home, and the man did exactly what Jesus wanted him to do. He proclaimed throughout these ten cities what Jesus had done for him. My guess is he didn't have to do a lot of convincing to get people to believe that his life had been transformed. There's no doubt that his reputation had been known far and wide in that region. All the people knew about the naked wild man who stayed among the tombs, roamed the hills, shrieking and screaming as he cut himself with rocks. So this man went back to be a witness. And evidently he was a really good one. Because we'll see the results later in Mark's gospel. Just hold that thought for a few weeks. So he went and showed what the Lord had done for him. No wonder the last phrase of this verse says, and all marveled. All were amazed. Jesus showed great mercy to this man, and the result was that the man became a living testimony, a living witness to everyone around him. And beloved, you know what? That is exactly the way it's supposed to be with us. The Lord extends us mercy And he saves us to be a living testimony to the people right around us. So how are you doing? How's your witness? How is it? Consistent with those closest to you? With those who know you best? Jesus said, no, don't come with me. Instead, go home. Go home to your friends. Tell them, show them what great things the Lord has done for you. That's our mission. Let's pray. Our Father, as we once again contemplate this amazing story and then the the epilogue at the end and how it applies to us, may we see in the Lord Jesus' words to this man the instruction of this man, our responsibility to live the truth consistently before a watching world. And that watching world is often the people right around us. Our own friends, co-workers, teammates, classmates, neighbors, family members. May we represent the Lord Jesus properly. May we represent him well. Father, in closing, we want to pray for anyone here among us who doesn't know Jesus personally, who's not been transformed by him, that in these words which we have considered this morning, they would see the tremendous power Jesus has to change a life. And may it prompt them to yield 
their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.